Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Time now for the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Here is your host, Paul Tarsi. On a packed program, we hear from Tim Foster, who is the man behind much of the resurgence in interest in those fire-breathing Group B rally cars of the mid-1980s. He's also put together an amazing live demonstration of Group B cars, such as the Metro 6R4 and the Quattros and the Peugeot 205 uh, T16s, plus all sorts of rally cars from across the decades at the this year's Race Retro, which will be actually out and on the on the rally stage. He's going to be telling me a bit about that. As usual, I'm joined by the regular Historic Racing News Radio Show team, Jim Roller, Joe Bradley. Hey, neighbors. <laughs> and Paul Jurd, they'll be, as usual, not holding back on their thoughts and opinions. And the theme for Corridors of Power is called My Favourite Motorsport Story. I also hear, want to hear straight from the horse's mouth about this year's Daytona 24 Hours, which was yet another sign that we're entering into another golden age of sports car racing. Joe Bradley, you were there mm. reporting um, in pit lane. Was it as good as it seemed? Yes, it was. Fine, thank I mean, you very much indeed. <laughs> yep, GTP is the future. GTP hypercar, but you know what? Those cars are just so spectacular. And I'm really lucky, guys, because I literally breathing in that brake dust and I'm literally breathing in the tyre smoke as the wheels spin off the apron. It's like I'm so lucky. Um, in fact, let's sum up. This year's event, in one word, it would be sweaty. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Coming from England, um, I love the sunshine. I love the heat. I hadn't just come from England, though. We'd just done the Abu Dhabi six hours, hadn't we, the weekend before. And we were pretty much bounced through home, washed the shirts and the underpants, and off we went to Daytona. And we hit Daytona after a weekend of pretty cool temperatures. However, as the week progressed, it got hotter and hotter and hotter. And it was about the race day was about 28 degrees. The Friday was about 27 degrees. And the problem was not so much just the sunshine and heat, but it was 80% humidity. And that is the sort of humidity you get when you walk into a sauna. And it was just, Really, really oppressive. And that made our job really tricky in the pits because when the drivers were getting out of the cars, understandably, they were whisked away into some sort of air conditioning and, and to recover and to cool down, basically, because you just couldn't cool down out, outside. You know, you, you couldn't, even in the shade, it was it was just so, so humid. So I'm getting old, guys. So it's always a grueling event. Any 24-hour is, is a grueling event. There was a full course caution with about, you know, 45 minutes to go. Um, the Lexus left 
my literally at my feet, the number 12 Lexus left and then burst into flames as it went down pit road from the left hand front corner. And I, th- I thought it maybe had been a bit of a build-up of tyre pickup, but it turned out it was the plenum exploded or something. Um, I immediately got a, I managed to get a, an interview with Jimmy Vassa, who said that uh, the thing had burst into flames because the plenum had, had burst into flames and that brought out the full course caution so we had the 30 minute sprint race to the flag after 23 and a half hours of qualifying race it was a great finish Philippe Naza being chased down all the way to the flag which came out a lot prematurely yes. I don't know if you guys saw that um, yes I'm still not sure why I'm, I'm sure there's been some sort of official statement made which I I'm there, not sure there was seen. There was. IMSA put out an official statement. This isn't the first time that it has happened. It happened mm-hmm. once in Portland in a much shorter mm-hmm. race. The checkered flag came out early. Uh, it was totally accidental. Um, and the the statement, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it basically the IMSA officials took the blame. They just, they made a mistake. I mean, you yeah. know, it's 24 hours. It, it, like you said, they're wearing driver's suits too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, no, that kind of mistake shouldn't happen, but it was, a, it was an honest mistake. The conspiracy theorists are already all over it, aren't oh. they? Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, I mean, as ever. The thing is, the thing is <laughs> right, Nasa was being, I mean, Nasa is a former Formula One driver, you know, Tom Blomquist should have been, should should have had a bash at Formula One, hasn't needed to. Um, he won the race last year with Acura, with uh, Mayor Shank, remember, and then was taken out of the results for a, a, a penalty last year. They, they were just duking it out, but they weren't nose to tail. It was 23 seconds. Yeah. However... I presented the court Toyota in 2016. Who's to say anything might have happened on that last lap? So that's always going to be the the deliberation. But you know what? After all of that said, didn't detract from what was a very exciting race. It was quite an old school endurance race because we had a lot of attrition. And that's just the top class. I mean, the GTD class is in, uh, it's so healthy. And for Giuseppe Risi, to take a Rolex 24 win in the GTD Pro class was just icing on an already very rich cake. First time ever. Which I would have lost money on, Good Jim. Stuff. Yeah, you would have. Yeah, I would have <laughs> as well. I would have lost money on Giuseppe <laughs> Risi. Has, has Giuseppe Risi won? Yeah, bound to have. Thank you, thank you for that, Joe. The story of Donald Campbell is well known to virtually everybody and uh, – I still treasure a large picture of Donald Campbell's CN7 car, record-breaking car that uh, that Jim gave me some some years ago, and is uh, still hanging in pride of place on my wall. Um, we're talking to his nephew on the show, Don Wales. He's uh, he's been on the show a couple of years ago to talk about his famous record-breaking uncle, but since then. A whole new controversy has blown up since the wreck of his water speed record, breaking the record breaker, the uh, Bluebird K7, was raised from the bed of Lake Coniston in Cumbria. There is now a bitter dispute involving family members, the local museum and the man who raised the boat from the depths. Don Wells is going to tell us all about the uh, that sad tale. But uh, but first, a new feature for us here on the Historic Racing News radio show, and that is called PJ Investigates. It's going to be a regular feature, 
though not necessarily every month, where my great friend and co-founder of Historic Racing News, Paul Jurd, uh, gets down into a subject of his choice. We all know that Paul is is a detail man. He uh, he loves getting get, getting down and dirty with all sorts of facts and figures. So he's going to we're going to let him loose basically. Uh, and it might be a circuit, it might be a car, it might be a race series or a person. Um, and I'm for one, I'm really looking forward to these. What's your uh, what's your first choice for PJ Investigates then, Paul? Oh well, I'm I'm going to build up to that because I want to start <laughs> off just by talking about Italy. Italy's a hotbed of motorsport, home to Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, Maserati, three of the giants of motorsport. Plus, you got Lancia, a hugely innovative in Grand Prix racing in the fifties, a rallying force in the seventies and eighties, and you know so many other teams: Minardi, ATS, Tecno Coloni. Di Tommaso, Fond Metal Life, and even the notorious Andrea Moda, just to name a few from just Formula One. And, you know, Italy, you've got Delara, who builds chassis for race, race series across the world. And, you know, they took over and dominated Formula Three in the mid 90s, seeing off names such as Rout and Reynard and Toms. And, uh, you know, now build the Indy cars. You know, every Indy 500 since 2005 has been won by Delara chassis, and they've won 23 Indy 500s in all. And, you know, it goes way, way back in Italy. You know, the first race to bear the Italian Grand Prix label was in 1921 at Brescia. And, it's, you know, other than the gap for World War II, it's been a constant on the calendar worldwide. And, you know, Monza hosted the second running in 1922, then every race bar one since it resumed in 1949. When I didn't realize it's 1980, the Italian Grand Prix sneaked off to Imola. Italian racing is like so ingrained that two of the most famous historical races, races that actually have names rather than be referred to by circular country, took place there. You've got the Milmiglia, the, you know. For, for you know the the flat out thousand mile blast on public roads from Brescia down to Rome and back, and the Targa Floria, you know, a public road event in Sicily which used varying routes and was most typically eleven laps of a forty five millimeter millimeter circuit. Now, for the pedants, and of course the pedants will rule the world one day because they read the small print. They were more time trials than races. But they were major events, hugely prestigious at their peaks. And, uh, you know, the Targa Flory was part of the uh, World Sports Car Championship right into the 1970s. So popular is motorsport that it's really the only country that's got actually a name for its most ardent fans. And there seem to be not many of any other type there. The Tifosi. There are wonderful graduations of support and subtleties that can confuse the non-purebred Tifosi. Any Ferrari driven by a non-Italian will get their support. Any car ahead of a Ferrari will be the target of much derision, some very Italian hand gestures and much glee should it retire. And this even extends to Italian drivers in other cars. At the 1983 San Marino Grand Prix, uh, the the departure of Riccardo Patrese, an Italian driver, from the race in a Brabham while leading with six laps to go was roundly cheered as it put Patrick Tombe, a Frenchman in a Ferrari, into the lead. Italy has the teams, the constructors, the races, the circuits, the Tifosi. But the big question is, where, oh, where has been the dominant race winning, even championship winning drivers for the last 70 years? For it's been 70 years since an Italian driver won a Formula One world title. A fact that would have seemed inconceivable right back then because three of the first four titles were won by Italian drivers. And it hasn't been for want of trying. You know, by my maths, there have been 45 Italian Formula One drivers. So I said that the first of those four Formula One titles right at the beginning went to Italians. Giuseppe Farina claimed the first in 1950 in an Alpha. 
And then in 52 and 53, Alberto Ascari took Ferrari's first titles. And, you know, it's Ascari that I really want to talk about today. I think a forgotten great in many ways. He's still the Italian driver with the most Grand Prix wins with 13, despite only actually having done 32 Grand Prix. And, you know, it's a fantastic record. And in fact, he still holds some Formula One records. Most consecutive fastest laps with seven between the 1952 Belgian Grand Prix and the 1953 Argentinian. Highest percentage of fastest laps in a season, 75% in 1952. And surprisingly, given the recent dominance of Red Bull, etc., the most consecutive laps led with 302 from the 1952 Belgian Grand Prix through to the French Grand Prix, the British Grand Prix, and then the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, and then finally, finally rounding that off with the Dutch Grand Prix. Phenomenal record. Yeah. And possibly a record that looks hugely impressive at first glance to it. Highest percentage of possible championship points won in a season with 100%. Really? Really, 19, 1952, a time, you know, reliability was nothing like it is now, but there was a very odd scoring system where drivers only counted their best four results from eight races. And in fact, Ascari missed the season opening Swiss Grand Prix as it clashed with Indian, Indianapolis qualifying. The Indy 500 was the second point scoring race, which he didn't actually do the race. And uh, the remaining six races of the season all went to Ascari and his Ferrari. So... <laughs> That's some record, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, who was Alberto Ascari? And, you know, as is common in motorsport, he came from a racing family. His father, Antonio, won four Grand Prix in the 20s, driving for Alfa Romeo, was the first driver to win in the Alfa, Alfa Romeo P2 back in 1924. Won the 1925 Belgian Grand Prix by an amazing advantage of 21 minutes, 58 seconds. Really? <laughs> just, just okay. So the races were longer. Yes, yes, and it was a whole different sport back in those days, wasn't it? We complain today that races are boring, eh? Um, <laughs> Antonio was killed at the 1925 French Grand Prix at, at Montlhery, and you know he was hugely popular. You know that he was deeply mourned, and uh, you know the public paid their respects in France. And the train taking his body back to Italy was bedecked with flowers at every stop. His calf coffin was displayed at Alfa Romeo's building with long lines of mourners. And he died two weeks before young Alberto's seventh birthday. But that didn't deter young Alberto from his desire to race. And reputedly, he twice ran away to become a racing driver. Not quite sure how that works. It's not really like the circus, is it? Um, <laughs> so he started racing when he was 17 and over four years completed regularly on, on a whole variety of motorcycles and Gilera, certain, even Bianchi machinery but had his first car race in 1940. Now, if you're going to have your first car race, you, you start off somewhere simple, don't you? Somewhere low key, just to get your eye in, have a feel for it. Not Alberto Ascari. His first race was the 1940 Milmelia. Admittedly, over nine laps of a 103-mile circuit rather than the usual blast down to Rome and back, but yeah, apparently there was a war on and it was getting in the way, even if Italy was yet to be involved. And the car he drove? The first car built by a friend of his, Ferrari, his father's, Enzo Ferrari, the AAC 815, because part of the deal of Ferrari leaving Alfa Romeo was he was not allowed to build cars under his own name for four years. And uh, Alberto bought the car for 20,000 lira. It's a, it was a lovely, handsome two-seater, 1500cc straight eight engine. And in fact, Ascari was leading the 1500cc class when electrical failure put him out. You know, you wonder who was brave enough to sit next to the novice as a co-driver in his first race, but he kept it in his family, and it was his cousin Giovanni Minozzi who filled the seat. Now, 
As Alberto immediately wanted more, and for the sum of 12,000 lira, rented Piero Taruffi's Maserati for two races. Finished ninth in a Tripoli Grand Prix, even though the Maserati was totally outclassed by the Alphas. And then raced the Targa Floria when he crashed out, at which point Italy ended the war, start, entered the war. And uh, during the war, he ran a business with fellow racer Luigi Villaresi, transporting fuel and vehicles. And it was Villaresi who induced, introduced him to a lovely lady called Maria Antonio Tavola who he married in 1942, and they had a son. She was keen that he didn't race again, so the 815 was sold in 1943 for twice what he paid for it. Canny businessman, R. Alberto. But the family survived the war, and in 1946, he reformed his pre-war race team. And a father of two by now, and distinctly more rotund than in his pre-war pictures, if you go and have a quick look. He uh, was, was initially un- uninterested in racing again until he, he went to a race in, Mina- in Naples and persuaded someone to let him try their Maserati in practice. And to his friend's surprise, was right on the pace. And he then tested the car at the Monza that year without Maria knowing. So he returned to racing in Egypt the next year in a one-make series. We think one-make series are new, but uh, all the way back in the late 40s, a one-make series for Sicitalia single-seaters. And uh, came second in the final behind Franco Cortesi. That's one for good so word, isn't it? Needed... It is really. <laughs> Assist Italia, single seat. Yeah, I don't know how many of the cars are out there, but they must have looked magnificent. And, uh, you know, he needed a car. And with Ferrari still in the throes of setting us up his factory and Alfa Romeo refusing to sell to privateers, Maserati was the option. So he bought a supercharged full CLT and uh, raced two seasons, coming fourth in the 47 Italian Grand Prix. And uh, running right with the third place alpha when the fuel tank, sp- tank split, which uh, relegated down the field. But he was showing that he had pace to spare. At the San Marino Grand Prix later that year, he won in a newer Maserati, heading home for the and earning the nickname from the uh, Tifosi of Ciccio, which um, translates as chunky, which is possibly what, one of the greater uh, motorsport nicknames, really, isn't it? Well, that's what uh, that's what Colin Chapman's nickname was. It, it exactly, it was. Yes, yeah, Chunky Chapman, wasn't it? So, uh, yeah. as I said, he was slightly rotund, but at longer races in those days, you needed a different sort of endurance. So, Alpha returned to racing in '48, bringing the one five eights that they'd raced pre-war out of hiding, and uh, tragedy struck sadly right away as the great Achille Varzi was killed in his Alpha in practice. But uh, Every motorsport tragedy brings opportunity, and Ascari got the call by Alpha to race their third Alfetta at Reims in July that year. It was the most powerful car he, you know, he'd ever driven. 360 brake horsepower from its supercharged straight eight, a 1.5-litre supercharged straight eight, remembering. The car was fast, powerful, and uh, Ascari was second on the grid, but it was also heavy on the fuel and had to stop three times for a 500-kilometre Grand Prix. The Alphas dominated the race with uh, Ascari was third and he led at times. There was only third actually after being able to la- let the team regulars get past and take first and second. And he was then back in the Maserati British Grand Prix at Silverstone. And uh, along with teammate Villaresi, they arrived too late for practice. That doesn't happen anymore, does it? <laughs> so they had to start from the back of the grid. And Ferrari and Alpha didn't make the journey. So the two Maseratis two, tore through the order. And were one and two after just three laps of the race. So Ascari was now well established and uh, into the 1948 season, which started in Argentina, they were out in uh, brand new Maseratis now looked after by the factory. And uh, Ascari took the win. Now, despite Juan Manuel Fangio being out in a brand new Maserati, Ascari took the win. And when he crossed the line, he saw walls of spectators coming towards him. And he was convinced they were out to get him for beating their local favourite. 
And in fact, our race winner hid in a parked car for 45 minutes before he was finally convinced that they just wanted to carry him aloft after his win. So we complain about track invasions these days and everything. It's a tradition, apparently. But booing, booing, so, the, uh, booing Verstappen on the podium at Monza is, uh, is, is quite tame, isn't it, by comparison? It is, really. Yeah, he didn't go and hide in the motorhome, did he, really? <laughs> Wouldn't be the but, first uh, took it on the chin, effectively. <laughs> so, yeah, there were successes and failures going through it into 1949 and the further forging, really, of that relationship with Ferrari. But it was in 1950 that things got serious. The FIA started their first ever Formula One championship consisting of six races. Alfred stood down in 49, but were back for the new championship. Had Nino Farini and Luigi Fagliola as drivers, plus, plus an Argentinian newcomer. An odd thing to say for a man in his late 30s, but Juan Manuel Fangio. Now, Ascari was signed by Ferrari, who, like most of the other cars, started with those incredibly powerful supercharged 1.5 litre engines. But they were actually pretty sure that the other option in the rules of 4.5 litres atmospherics was the way to go, would give better fuel consumption. And they had a new car and combination on the way. Alpha was still the potent beast that they were. And uh, Ascari started the uh, season in that supercharged Ferrari 125. But they actually missed the season opener at Silverstone. This is a, this is a whole insight to how Grand Prix racing at the time. Ferrari didn't go to the first ever World Championship Grand Prix at Silverstone because the Formula 2 race at Belgium was offering more start money. And uh, the next weekend, it was the Monaco Grand Prix, and they managed to turn up late for that. Missed first practice, which meant they had to start down the grid. And there was a chaotic pileup on the first lap with uh, cars continuing, threading their way through the carnage with fuel all over the circuit. Fangio taking his maiden win, but Alberto Ascari coming through to take second for Ferrari. After the race, Ascari complained to Enzo Ferrari, that he was unable to sign autographs for pretty girls after the races. His right hand was so damaged by the stiff gearbox in the 125. They never <laughs> ran the cars with that gearbox again. You know, as ever, towards the end of the season, it's the Italian Grand Prix that matters for the Italian teams. And Alfa entered five cars against just two for Ferrari at Monza. But Ferrari had the new 375 with a 4.5-litre engine, up around 4.5-litre V12, no doubt, 340 horsepower. And uh, Fangio was on pole, but Ascari was second, the only two drivers to go under two minutes. And in the race, there was Ascari was amongst the gaggle of alphas and led at one point, sadly, only to retire with a blown engine. But uh, that didn't mean he was out of the race because he actually just promptly took over the team, the car of teammate Dorino Serafina and finished second behind the alpha of uh, Farina that actually won. Fangio's retirement enough to give Farina the title and uh, Ascari ultimately fifth. So hopes were high heading into 51 that there could actually be a challenge to uh, Alfa Romeo. And, uh, you know, it's important to remember as well, context here, that today we see Ferrari as, you know, the, the big, you know, the big team, the big name in Formula One. Here they were the new kids on the block, don't forget. Yeah, he was actually injured in a crash in a Formula 2 race and was still had an arm issue when uh, the, the championship season opened in May and uh, was only sixth in a, in a wet race that uh, kicked off the season, to be honest, losing again to Fangio. But uh, second round of the season was again Indy, so that didn't affect the championship positions. And at Spa at June, on uh, 36 laps of the old 14-kilometre race, Ferrari hopes were high with their better fuel consumption and they were on course to make one less pit stop than the Alpha. Alberto qualified second on the grid, but again, in just 10 laps, was alone battling with the Ferraris as uh, Villaracy and Tarufi had car issues. And Farina won for Alfa from Ascari, and uh, Fangio losing 15 minutes in the pits as a wheel jammed on pit stop issues even back then. So basically, 
it was you know, a big season. Still no win for Ferrari. And uh, as the Silverstone hosted the British Grand Prix, and finally, finally, Ferrari took that dramatic win, but it wasn't with Alberto, unfortunately. It was Gonzalez. Froyland Gonzalez from Argentina came out on top. And uh, actually, he started to get, he pitted his car for a pit stop and started to get out to hand over his car to Ascari, who politely declined, letting Gonzalez take the reward for handing his car over two weeks earlier in France when the opposite had happened. So uh, chivalry in those days, eh? Yes, it doesn't happen now either. It isn't. But Alberto didn't have to wait long for a win. And earlier, you know, he'd, t- he'd run at the Nürburgring in Formula 2 earlier in the year. And that came in useful as uh, at the end of July, he was there 30 seconds clear of Fangio after a great battle where he actually reeled in the Argentina, in Argentina and passed him. And he then led home a Ferrari 1-2 at Monza. So with one race left of the season, Somehow Ferrari and Ascari were actually in with a shout of the title, despite how the season had actually started, just two points behind Fangio and an even better position with drop scores. And, you know, the Ferraris were the form car, quickest car. Alberto claimed pole, but hoping for better acceleration in the race, the team decided to run 16 inch wheels rather than the 17s they'd run all season. Worked fine in practice, but in the heat of the race, the car started throwing treads and Alberto was in for a pit stop after just 14 laps. He finally came fourth, but had to second for settle, settle for second in the championship. Yeah, Ferrari once more shooting themselves in foot. A little bit of a theme over the years with them for that every now and then, I think. Yes. The uh, 52 should have seen the V12 Ferraris, the class of the field. But Alpha withdrew from racing and uh, BRM were not really serious competitive positions. So Ferrari actually had the only Formula One cars. So the FIA realized that no, the only team would be Ferrari and it declared the series would run to Formula Two regulations. Two liter, two liter atmospheric engines or 750cc supercharged. But Ferrari, of course, been successful in Formula 2, had a great little engine, a four cylinder two liter. And uh, Ferrari and Ascari were looking like favorites for the season, especially because Fangio was sidelined by a testing crash at Monza. What did Ferrari do with Ascari? They missed the opening race, the Swiss Grand Prix descending to Indianapolis. Indianapolis. And uh, so the first Grand Prix win for Ascari was actually at Spa in June, that far into the season. And he won almost two minutes clear of Farina, then won at Silverstone, Nür- Nürburgring, Zandvoort and Monza, claiming every remaining race in that 400, 500 Ferrari. And with the best four scores counting, you know, this is an age of way less reliable cars. He finished the season with a perfect score and his p- first title. Yeah, there was no Fangio, but he was completely dominated drivers such as Tarufi, Villaresi and Gonzalez and was seen as a worthy champion. Into 53, now Fangio was back in a Maserati. And uh, the 1953 season started in January in Argentina. And uh, with Indianapolis not really counting, the next Grand Prix was actually all the way in June. Can you imagine that first Grand Prix is in January? The second is effectively in June. And Ascari won, a fact he, he repeated at Spa two weeks later. And in fact, he'd won at that point, won nine of the last 10 championship races. The only non-win Indianapolis, which he didn't contest. So it was a great season. And again, the Italian Grand Prix was rounding off the season. And it was an epic slipstreamer, two Ferraris against two Maseratis. And on the last four, it was, uh, you know, the lead four quarterback marker at uh, Parabolica and Ascari went to the outside slid and collected the the, uh, Maserati and Fangio came through to win. And uh, Ascari, uh, Ascari, who's always a suspicious man, basically, at that point, you know, basically said it was the 13th after all. 
This is a man who always wore a lucky blue crash helmet. But it didn't really matter because he'd already sealed the season back earlier, way, way back in the season with with, uh, victory at the Swiss Grand Prix. 54 with new regulations, two and a half litres. And uh, Ascari actually went to race for Lancia, which turned out not to be a smart move because they didn't have a car. So he actually um, dibbled and dabbled with other cars and everything. Finally, you know, the new Lancers were ready for the last race of the season. Iscari put the car on pole, so there was so much potential in that Lancia D50, but retired after nine laps. They worked hard on their cars over the winter, but Mercedes-Benz were coming in, Ferrari were going to be rivals. You know, it was going to be a tough, tough year. And uh, Iscari, you know, they did some non-championship races in the Lancia just to try to actually get some pace into it. But the first race of Monaco, strong entry, and a fourth Lancia driven by 56-year-old her- local hero, Louis Chiron. You know, this was different times. Frino and Taruffi were 49, Villaracy was 46, and Alberto was now 36. The Mercedes were supposed to dominate, but uh, Alberto swapped cars with Chiron before the race as he damaged his gearbox. And it really became a Monaco Grand Prix for the ages for several reasons. You know, the, the mighty Mercedes didn't take the win. You know, the, the second being Maurice Trantignon taking the win by Alberto provided the other enduring memory of the race. So Fangio retired on lap 50, putting Moss ahead, a minute clear of Alberto. But then 81 Moss had the same valve problem that put out Fangio and Alberto was leading. A lap later, he arrived at the chicane, not aware he was now a race leader, locked a wheel on the oil dropped by Mass. The Lancia spun, went through the fencing at the edge of the track and into the harbour just two metres behind the fence. Now, Louis Chiron was substantially bigger than Alberto, and fortunately his car had a bigger cockpit. Indeed, uh, Chiron was so cramped in Alberto's car, he could only use three of the five gears. And with also no seatbelts, Alberto was able to get out the car, and uh, a very good swimmer was taken to hospital with light facial injuries and uh, also damage to his thighs. So there was doubts over Lancia even making the next race. They had financial pressures. So uh, when Eugenio Castellotti called Ascari the following Thursday, said, I'm down at Monza testing a new Ferrari. Would you like to come down? He said he would. So he left home in a suit and tie, told his wife he'd be back for lunch at 1 p.m. with her children and uh, left without his racing gloves, without his lucky blue helmet that was uh, being repaired after his Monaco crash. He had a cup of tea with Castellotti and Count Lurani, who was also there at the circuit, and uh, looked at the Ferrari, which was still in bare metal yet to be painted red, and uh, said, it's always better to get straight back into the car after an accident, isn't it? He borrowed Castellotti's helmet, gloves, goggles, set off, and said, I'll do a few laps slowly. It was his first time in a 750, a car both Hawthorne and Paul Frere had said was pretty unforgiving if you made a mistake. Did a warm-up lap. Crossed the line, going quicker into lap two, quicker again on lap three. And a lap he was sadly never to complete. At the Vialoni corner, some new asphalt had been laid down. The Ferrari slid, snapped sideways, launched into a series of rolls, and Ascari was thrown out. The only car on track, the sudden silence, made all in the pits aware of what happened. And uh, gravely injured with multiple fractures, Alberto died in the arms of his great friend Villaracy on the ambulance in the way to hospital. It was literally even being referred to as a national disaster in Italy, the loss of a sporting national hero. And the route for his transportation of his coffin from Monza to Milan was lined the whole route as people paid their final respects to the great double champion. Always a superstitious man, Alberto was killed on the 26th of the month, just four days after a close call, aged 36, exactly the same as his father 30 years earlier. And in fact, Alberto lived for a total of three days more than his famous father. Fangio was quoted as having lost his closest rival, although 
fate and deviating career paths never meant they never really faced each other in equivalent machinery. And, and Dennis Jenkinson always rated was always an Ascari fan and rated him higher, better than Fangio. His position as leading Italian driver has never been threatened. Maybe maybe only by Mario Andretti, who was Italian born and had even seen Ascari race as a child. And Italian drivers have completed hundreds of races and none has got close to Alberto's 13 wins. And uh, he is remembered forever at the circuit where he died. He crashed at Veranti Vialoni, a quick left-hander at the end of the run from the second Lesmo that pointed the cars towards Parabolica, which is now, of course, the uh, Varianti Ascari, the left-right in the same spot and a fitting tribute to the great double champion. You're listening to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff there. As you probably know, Paul and I will be joined on stage at Race Retro on the 23rd to the 25th of February by Jim Roller and Nick Padmore for a live version of Corridors of Power. And much as I would like to think that people are, are seeing who are seeing this are actually just coming to see us, the uh, there's lots lots more going on and uh, that one of the most important aspects of the race retro event is the man that I'm joined by now who is behind the rally part of the show and that's Tim Foster who via his company rallying with group B puts it all together Tim welcome to the historic racing news radio show thanks for coming on board and uh, um, thank you for taking the time to talk to us well thank you very much for the invite it's a pleasure so well race retro is very unusual in the world of exhibitions in that it has this live rally stage i know it's not unique but it's it's unusual yeah first of all just tell us how the live rally stage thing came together well that was um it was some time ago with um with the, with the old manager of the show which uh, david alderson who's still about today he still he still gets involved and uh, he comes and says hello and points in the right direction when we're not doing something right although he's not really <laughs> involved in it anymore but uh, we're we're always pleased to see him um and and enjoy his input um but yes it was a it was a colleague of mine actually a chap called Steve Davis uh, who we'll go on to a little bit later on really um but Steve was the sort of founder of uh, group B demonstrations in this country really and um and he was asked by um the event management at the time and David Alderson to uh, to put on a small display of cars. I can't really couldn't remember what the year that would be, but I would imagine we're getting on to sort of 15, 18 years ago really now. So it's been going on for a fairish time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got involved with Stephen through that really. I was um, um, I was a registered licensed clerk, of course, and uh, um, and I was connected with Stephen in the demonstration world and. Um, and going on different events with him and, uh, and, and other members of, of a group. And uh, and that's where it came about. So we, we started putting on small display at, uh, at Race Retro many, many years ago. Uh, ironically, in the same area that we're actually used now. Um, yeah. But uh, not, not very many cars, maybe a dozen cars, something like that. So not, nothing like it is today. So how many cars are you expecting this year? Well, we've we've an entry of over one hundred cars again uh, for the rally stage. Uh, yeah, so it's it's 
I mean, with, with you combine that with static displays that we put on and all the rest and, and the various different displays, we're doing some displays on the outside as well this year. Uh, we're probably nearly 150 cars coming to the show. That is amazing, isn't it? That, uh, that there's that yeah, many, so display. many of them running. Yeah, it is a great display. And, and you know, we're, we're normally turning people away. It's been a little bit quieter this year, but... Um, you know, it's not going to, they're coming in gradually now and I'm very pleased with the entry now. We're over sort of, like I said, we're over 100 cars now for the actual rally track itself. So um, it'll be a great display as normal. And is this a competitive event? No, it's, it's we run it under, um, under a demonstration permit, um, which is sort of, um, everybody likes to get a little bit excited and they're still, uh, they're still uh, rally driving's rally driving, I'm afraid. And unfortunately, when uh, when the flag goes down, it's very difficult to <laughs> differentiate between uh, between a demonstration and uh, and a competitive event. So there's no timing element to it whatsoever in any form. Um, and the drivers are instructed at driver's briefing every day to, uh, to drive within themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but as you eight, say, eight, two, nine, tens. But yeah, we have to keep reprimanding people during the day. But they're normally very, very well behaved, and and, and uh, you know, I'm very pleased and very proud of the drivers that we have. We're, they're, they're heavily vetted, and we look after. You know, we we look after the drivers that come on a regular basis, and we uh, you know, we, we 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 don't want anything going on. It's a demonstration and a display after all. Yeah, exactly, and and yeah. and that's that's something that's that's come along. Now, you. You mentioned Steve Davis, um, who we sadly lost last year, but it's um, it was very much his his baby, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes. Um, what happened was we we just just around the time of of the banning or, or the banning or the change of the rules of Group B in rallying, um, and a lot of the a lot of the cars that. There were ex-works cars, anything that was homologated into Group B that couldn't be changed and couldn't continue to be rallied. Some went into rallycross and other formulas, but the majority sort of ended up in um, in private collectors, really. Um, cars at that particular time probably would have been very, very cheap because they were obsolete. Nobody could You couldn't use them anywhere. They were banned. Yeah. Um, and they were snatched up by a lot of people that were, uh, you know, either they just wanted an, a Group B rally car or they, or they had the foresight to realise that one day they were going to be worth a million pounds. So <laughs> um, but they all ended up in the back of garages, locked away under sheets and things like that. And certain people, Steve Davis being one of them, um, got in contact with, and uh, Europe always seems to be, shouldn't really say this, but they all, we always seem to a little bit, be a little bit more advanced in, in what goes on in in motorsport and um, and Europe already with Reinhard Klein, the famous photographer, had already started an organisation called Slowly Sideways, which uh, were all, was already demonstrating uh, Group B rally cars and other other things of historic interest on the back of events like um, WRC Germany, for example, and uh, and events like that, the Eiffel Rally and things. So. So Steve started to drive. Steve started to get in contact with Reinhard, and and um, driving is the first actually. Every time Steve went, he drove his car all the way to Germany. He had a Porsche nine eleven Porsche, and he drove it all the way to with his core driver all the way to Germany. Did the event and then drove it all the way back. So, so so that was a marathon in itself, to be honest. And it would have been a large rally. I can't remember what rally it was, but it would have been a large rally. And Steve um, then sort of you know 
decided that obviously started coordinating a few of the other local chaps or the or the UK chaps and and, and Japesses and started to uh, encourage people to go over abroad and do the Slowly Sideways events. Eventually what happened is Steve just asked permission to start his own group in the UK and that, that's how it, how it came about and that's how Slowly Sideways UK came about or Slowly Sideways GB came about um, and, and the story goes on from there really. Now you're you're a you're a great Group B fan. I know that you're you know you you on on the T-shirt it says rallying with Group B. Um, yep. Is it is what we're going to see a race retro exclusively Group B or is it broader? No, I mean again, the, the, this company rallying with Group B was founded by Steve Davis. Um, to sort of the Slowly Sideways GB organisation in the early days ended up in a, a situation where they wanted to continue to go to Europe and do events over there. Where because of um, our connection with the UK and the licensing authorities and one thing or another, we decided that we should start putting on events in in the UK and doing which race retro was the first event that we did. Um, and basically, we. Um, Steve, Steve, Chris, and so Steve started rallying with Group B as a separate organisation. Albeit we did we did run under Slowly Sideways early days um, at Race Retro. But anyway, Steve started um, the rallying with Group B name, and his his ploy was I always said what what's rallying with Group B mean? And he says, well, exactly what it is. He said it's rallying with Group B, not rallying a Group B. So that means you know we're an organization with group b cars but you could also come and rally with with anything else you've got of any historic interest so so oh, to answer your question the basically we take anything of any historic interest and and with race retro we've we've expanded that because it's because it's a rally demonstration at race retro we we take anything now that's of of interest right up to modern day sort of r5 and the world rally cars um so, uh, you know, we've had in the past, like last year, for example, you know, with half a dozen, probably half a dozen of the current R5 cars, um, you know, which put on a fabulous display, right, right back to sort of Ilman Imps and Minis and, you know, with, with X, X Ron and Altonon and Paddy Opkirk Minis attending and that's, so, so we've got a full array of uh, cars right through, right through the period of rallying, really. Many of our listeners are principally interested in circuit racing rather than rallying perhaps yes, so just just talk me through what group b was all about well group b was a formula um it's quite ironic really because we've almost got back to group b now in the current hybrid world rally cars so group b was a formula which was developed to um a modification that uh, that uh, a class of rules, a set of rules, to say that you could modify a vehicle uh, from a production class car to um, of two hundred vehicles. You had to you had to build two hundred vehicles, and you could mod- heavily modify them. And those rules got extended and and um, exploited. Is that the right word? Exploited to the point where they they were just monsters, absolute monsters, flame spitting. Um, 500 horsepower monsters. Some of the quattros were even bigger, to be honest. Um, and eventually, we just got to a point where there were there, 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 there is a story. There is a story about um, one of the race circuits was uh, uh, very close to a rally stage, 
um, Formula One racing circuits and, and they set uh, one of the rally cars off. They worked out that actually the, the rally car would have been faster off the line than, than, than a Formula One racing car at the time. Really? So, yeah. Really? And, and you can imagine these cars were in forests with people sort of close proximity to the edge of the stage. They were, we ended up in a situation where people were getting killed. A lot of drivers got killed at the time because the, the structural sound of the, of the vehicles weren't that great. Um, and, yeah, something had to happen. Something had to happen, and the rules changed around 86, I think it was, to, uh, to, to I mean, that's like I said, they didn't really get banned. They just did a rule change that meant that they were all obsolete. So, Right, right. And um, we're talking about things like the the Peugeot 205 and, and the Metro 604 and those sorts of cars, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, probably the, probably the best car that was developed, which is again, it's argumentative, uh, was probably the Delta S4, which never, um, which won so much things, and that's that. Unfortunately, uh, Henry Tovenen lost his his life in that car in a in a freak accident, which where the car unfortunately set on fire, uh, and him and the car drive lost their life. And I think that was really th- there was other incidents before that, but I think that was the one that really decided that uh, that was that but that car would have gone on to just been just be the winner you know the winner of everything really eventually and looking back on those times and that that Lancia Delta S4 that had nothing to do with a road going S uh, Delta did it <laughs> no not really no <laughs> not really at all no it's uh, yeah mid-engine mid-engine four-wheel drive I think it was supercharged and turbocharged um, but just just an absolute monster, which is great <laughs> to, to me. That that really works it all uh, out perfectly. Uh, but when rally fans need to thaw out, because they might need to thaw out a bit, um, plenty of rally content in the show itself, isn't there? Uh, yes, there absolutely is. Yeah, like I said, we've got a tribute stand. Um, we've got a tribute stand for Steve Davis. Uh, in Hall 3, we've got about 20. So what we decided to do, because of Steve losing his his fight to cancer in November, we decided to just honour him, really. Um, We wouldn't be here, really. There's there's various organisations now in in, the demonstration world that have all aspired and come from, all come from the original Steve's idea. Uh, And Steve's probably had some connection with them all the way through that time. Um. But um, we've decided to sort of honour him, really, and uh, to a backdrop of sort of 20 Group B cars. So we're going to have... Really? Yeah, about approximately 20 Group B cars in Hall 3 on, on um, connected to the Rallying with Group B stand. And um, we'll, we'll sort of tell a story on uh, on storyboards, really, of, of what Group B was about, how its, um, how its demise came about, and how we sort of ended up at, at Race Retro in 2024. So... Uh, it'd be quite an interesting story, really. That a lot of people won't have heard. So, yeah, and a lot, a lot of people probably haven't been up close and personal with with a, a proper live um, Group B car. So, no, I mean, we've, we've, to have a look yeah, at those closely. We've, we've got some real nice cars. We've we've with a vehicle from with a an Audi S S one E two Quattro that's. Um, yeah, uh, uh, well, I have to say he's a fanatic, to be honest. 
But uh, a chap called Jamie Michael, and he's um, he spent 13 years building this car. Now the car is it's a replica to all intents and pers- purposes, but it is it is an exceptional replica. It's it's all it's been built. He's sourced. He's spent years sourcing parts from from factory factory parts, and this car has been built out of genuine factory parts. Uh, the car has been modelled off. Um, measurements and everything else from the original factory car. It's it's as it's as close a car that could ever have been that was never really a works car. Um, and so that will be that that that's just come to completion. And and by the side of that car is the identical car that's come out of the Audi UK museum collection. Right. To compare right. it to, to be honest. So the two cars will be side by side. Um. And uh, and what we're trying to uh, portray as well within the rest rest of the Group B scenario is we're trying to get road versions of of the rally cars. So we're, well, we've got rally cars and the road versions, the homologation versions, um, right, for you okay. to look at as well. So as long as well as that, we've also got shorts. So we've got short sport quattros, for example. We've got an MG six MG three MG three variants of MG Metro six R four from the. From the homologation special that they built to uh, to convert all the rally cars from uh, to a works car to actually the uh, the, the the dam or the TPR car which uh, Tony Pond Racing and and David Appleby was progressing onto uh, in later years. Uh, so so yeah, there's lots of variants and lots of different things to see on the stand. And you you mentioned there that you've you've got the storyboards to go with it. Yes, yes, yeah, it's something we're working on at the moment. Some good friends have we're, we're doing um, we're doing some research now back into lots of different stories from lots of different people of of being involved in um, in the in the uh, demonstration world for for all those years really, and uh, and they're writing little bits up for us that will uh, little snippets of stories that have gone on, and we'll uh, and we'll put those on storyboards around the room to uh, to just tell that story. That sounds sounds fascinating in itself, and it's not just the cars, is it? Because um, we've got some famous names due to appear. Well, we have, yeah, and it's it's you know we we have the normal stars that that come on a regular basis that that just love attending the show because because of what it is, and you know the people like David Llewellyn and Tom Llewellyn, his son, um, David, two times British Rally Champion, um, they're coming, they're attending again, they're competing. Or like I always say competing, but they're uh, <laughs> taking <laughs> taking part. Yes, they're taking part. Um, you know, and then and then from a rallying perspective, we've we've got we've got the professor himself, Rano Altonen, who's come in with uh, uh, a model of his um, Monte Carlo car, I think it is, and uh, oh, you know he'll be brilliant. demonstrating on the rally stage. So he's actually. Uh, He'll be on the rally stage with that as well, so that'll be fabulous. That's something to see. So, uh, just just to just to stop you there, Tim, for a moment, people can come and watch Rano Altonen in a mini on the rally stage. Yes, absolutely. Fabulous. Absolutely. Fabulous. Um, um, you know, it's it's we, we've had Rano before, and we've put him in a. One of his old cars, and he did a few stages for us, but he's predominantly coming to do the the event. He wants to come and do the event. That's what he's coming to do. So it's oh. part of a it's part of a connection with BMW Mini and and some other things he's doing as well. And there's some other elements to that, which I'm sure will come out over the show that um, on the inter- on the live interview stage that uh, he'll tell you about what what that plan is. But uh, yeah, so that so that'll be interesting. It'd be nice to see him in anger in his own car. Um, 
and, and obviously not driving somebody else's car in principle. So uh, it'll be yes. nice to see that happening. Um, and along with that, we've, we've I've just had the news this uh, this last week that uh, we've got Harry Vattenen coming, no other than Harry Vattenen. So so that'll be fabulous as well. I mean, Harry's put on he's been he's been to the show before. He puts on a fabulous display. Um, and he will be driving as well. He's offered to drive as well. So, so if I can, if I can, if I can find somebody daft enough to let Harry drive their car, <laughs> <laughs> strange, strangely enough, Paul, <laughs> there's always somebody comes out that will work and goes, he can drive mine. But, <laughs> oh, which ironically, I, I have, I have an extra uh, Russell Brooks Andrews Eat for Hire Astra, which, uh, which I allowed Louise Aiken Walker to drive last year. So. Um, which worked all right, to be honest. It worked okay. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but there's always somebody daft. Yeah. Even it's always somebody daft enough to let them buy, drive the car, including me. So, <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point is, you can then put uh, you can put Ari Vatanen's name on the door, can't you? Well, that's it. Yeah, he's, he's definitely driven it, hasn't he? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you can't can't argue that point. So no, it's no. going to be a, a great event, isn't it, Tim? And, and congratulations it, it, to you. For, thank you very much. It's, it's for, something... for all of that. Um, yeah. And, and just just to remind everybody, that's Race Retro at the Stonely Exhibition Centre in Warwickshire, in the heart of the British Midlands, some of the most beautiful countryside around. Unfortunately, it's now got HS2 running through the middle of it, but uh, oh, yes. but but that's um, that, that's a different subject for another day. Yeah, we managed to um, work around that from the rally stage. We're very lucky that that didn't affect us too much. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you can get tickets for Race Retro at raceretro.com, and there's a listener to the Historic Racing News radio show just use the code HRN24 for a discount on your entry tickets if you buy them in advance. Tim, thank you so much for coming and to talk to us. I mean, you've certainly whetted my appetite. Uh, we're going to be there for three days anyway, so um, yeah. I'm I'm going to bring my wellies and I shall be out there and, and enjoying that for at least some of the time. But uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for the invite, Paul. I'll see you on the weekend. And now for something completely different, opinion and bombast, it is time to find out who will rule the quarters of power. For the February edition of Corridors of Power, we've chosen something which is completely a matter of personal preference, and that is called My Favourite Motorsports Story. You may remember that at the beginning of January, when we played the game, Jim complained that poor Jerd frequently got to go first. And he followed that up with a um, solicitor's cease and desist letter to me. And uh, when I ignored that, he sent a couple of unpleasant characters round to my house uh, with stocking masks on, trying to persuade me of the error of my ways. So, being a devout coward... Let's start with Jim. <laughs> well, Jim, what you got? That kind of falls right in line with my uh, with 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 my story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Irony of ironies. First, I narrowed it down to three. Uh, those three were um, Dan Gurney filling in for Bruce McLaren after he sadly passed away, and having such success for the 
McLaren operation that was Gurney doing something that was selfless and basically gave his time to the McLaren operation, won the first two races of that year's Can-Am season and got the team off to a great start because you'll recall that Denny Hulme had also burned his hands. So the team was in pretty much disarray. Dan came in and, and was a calming influence and and was able to to win the first two races and probably would have stayed with the team. As as is typical, sponsors got in the way. Dan was a Castrol guy, always had been, and they didn't want Dan working with McLaren because they had a competing oil company sponsor. That scuppered the deal, and, and Dan moved on. But it's always been, to me, one of the great motorsports uh, stories of, of the paddock helping the paddock out when Gurney put his own aspirations aside to go help McLaren. Of course, the great story of Nicky Lauda's comeback in 1976 after uh, only 42 days coming back to Monza. That one really ha- had an impression on me because as a young uh, reporter in 1976, I got to interview him uh, at Watkins Glen in his second race back after the big crash. And I will never forget seeing what he went through to just be able to go out and, and perform. So that will always be one of the greatest stories to me. It was his, was his comeback and the resilience that he showed uh, and the courage that he showed to just walk away later that year. That whole story from from uh, being saved to, to the last rites and telling the, the priest to get out of the room because he wasn't needed. Um, all of those things make for make for a great a great story. But the one I chose, um, again, has a very personal tone, and it's the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Watkins Glen Circuit. Racing started in the streets of Watkins Glen, which is my hometown, in 1948. Eventually, the circuit moved up on the hill to its current location. And in 1970, after a huge success and rapid growth in in the early 70s, the Watkins Glen Grand Prix Corporation decided that it was time to expand the racetrack. That proved to be the first of a series of some things that were their own missteps and some things that were just plain bad luck that ended up causing the facility to eventually go into bankruptcy. They took out a bond issue of $3.4 million in 1970 to increase the racetrack from 2.4 miles to 3.77 miles. While things started off well, the construction was done in in, in 71. Uh, by 73, things really started to fall apart. And, and some things were, as I said, not of their own making. In 73, the first thing that happened was in July, and that was the largest rock concert in the history of the world, really. 600, over 600,000 people were at the Watkins Glen Circuit. 600,000, Jim. 600,000. It made Woodstock look like a garden party. Wow. Um, <laughs> roads were blocked for 14 miles around with, with cars that had just been left. They would tow the uh, – my father actually bought uh, a car. Uh, what they did was they held the cars, I think, for 45 or 60 days after the, the concert. If they weren't claimed, they were they were auctioned off. And my dad actually bought a car that was that was auctioned off. Kids just left them and n- never came back. While the concert was a success, it ended up there were $22 million in lawsuits because of damage that was done, promises that were not kept. And that was the first, that was the first issue. 
Then in 73, in October, Francois Sever gets killed. Then Helmut Koenig gets killed. And now they've got to make more changes to the racetrack. They still have this $3.4 million debt hanging over them. Well, they carried on until things got really bad. In 1980, the only reason they were able to hold the Formula One race was because Bernie Ecclestone actually lent them $800,000 to do the race. And then in 81, Bernie said, no, the, the, you know, the trough is closed. It lost its Grand Prix. And the community was devastated. And there was a lot of, a lot of recriminations because a lot of what went on at the racetrack was uh, done in secrecy. And um, that, that shouldn't have been. And there was a lot of pointing of fingers at Henry Valent, who was the, the head of the organization at the time, um, the Grand Prix. Uh, association. Um, They ended up uh, filing for bankruptcy with $3.14 million in debt. And then in 1982, the racetrack was sold on the steps of the courthouse. And for those of us that grew up around the place, uh, it was, it was a very sad day. They literally had a judge on the court's house steps auctioning off. Property was bought by the bank of New York for, um, Pennies on the dollar. They bought it for one, one point two five million dollars for the whole five hundred and fifty acre facility. Little did we know at the time behind the scenes, Corning Glassworks, the Corning Glass International, Corning Enterprises, as the corporate name is, uh, was working behind the scenes. Jim Reisbach was the man. He was a, a big racing fan. He was the comptroller at Corning Glass. He put together a deal to buy the facility from the Bank of New York along with help from our friends at Daytona, International Speedway Corporation. They were partners in the deal and consultants, and they bought the uh, the racetrack in July of 1983. One year later, they had their first race again at Watkins Glen, and it was a summer IMSA race, much like it was not the six-hour race yet. It was just a, a regular IMSA race, but again, that six-hour tradition would be revived. And the 25 lawsuits, uh, all of that stuff, those were all settled out of court. The racetrack has continued to thrive ever since. Eventually, International Speedway Corporation bought out the Corning Glass stake in the property. And it is now part of the uh, Daytona Empire, if you will. Um, There's good and bad to that, as there is with every corporate situation. But thanks to the work of Jim Reisbach and, and, and Jim France and some other folks who really believed in what was capable of happening at Watkins Glen, racing was saved. And for me personally, that will always be one of the biggest stories in racing, both the, both the, the mismanagement that caused the den- demise uh, I got to live through all of that uh, bit about secrecy and, and everything else. That's why I kind of had a chuckle when you talked about the guys coming with the hoods out of their heads, because <laughs> there were a lot of, there were a lot of mob rumors um, during those times. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. And as I say, thanks to what proved to be corporate good Samaritans in the long run, uh, no matter what, you say about other things uh, they saved Watkins Glen so that will always be uh, the story that I regard as uh, a, a real huge story I'm, I'm sure we could come up with with many others but for me personally which is what the uh, and assignment I love, was I love the that's idea. mine 
I love the idea that it is such a personal story. And thank you very much indeed for for that, Jim. Um, I've got a strange feeling about Joe's uh, Joe's story because he's. I have no idea what anybody is going to say today about any of these mm. stories, but Joe's been making some sort of comments, and I'm kind of expecting something a bit off the wall. So, what have you got, Joe? It's it's not so much off the wall. Um, I've got lots of stories. Yeah, yeah. personal stories, <laughs> uh, motor racing related stories. I'll, um, you know, I run a, I've run race, I've run a racing team before, so I've got a lot of stories I couldn't possibly broadcast. Um, <laughs> but you know, stories. Trust me, dear listener, race. he's told me some of them, and he couldn't. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> the story I've gone with, I'll come to in a moment. But the sort of stories from the pit wall, it's like you know, when you're a team manager for a team, and one of your duties is to when your driver is called to the steward's office, you have to go with them. And I've got lots of stories relating to a, a lad called Alan Taylor, who was this character who I absolutely love. The sort of bloke who'd rather go to a lap dancing club than have a pint and a pack of the crisps. And I'm the pint and the pack of the crisps sort of guy. But <laughs> he would drag us off to these lap dancing clubs. Liar. I've never seen. I've seen. Honestly, I'd, <laughs> honestly, lads, it's not a spectator sport. Why would you need to even do that? I mean, you know, give me a pack of, pint of Guinness and a pint of Chris anytime. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Alan was like a forty-eight, nearly fifty years old businessman who'd sold his seafood supply business, uh, which was quite a big business in the northeast of England, supplying restaurants and hotels and. Uh, and he sold it for uh, quite a lot of money, to which he did his absolute best to piss it all away by going motor racing, <laughs> to the point where he bought a touring car, and just because he wanted to sign autographs and be a touring car. But anyways, this is not about touring cars. And I've got loads. We haven't got time for some Alan, some of the better Alan Taylor stories, so I'll just give you a quick snippet before I go into the one I'm putting forward. And I think this was a Brit car event at Brands Hatch, where I was called at the steward's office because he was being given a penalty for passing under the yellow. I said to him on the way there, I said, mate, they've already made up their mind. You're in the wrong. Don't try and get out of it. I said, just say, I'm really sorry. I'll not do it again. Right, right. I said, honestly, you're not going to argue out of this. So do not say anything other than, I'm really sorry. I'll not do it again. I said, because you could end up with a license endorsement here and a fine. So we go in, and the steward says, uh, you passed under the yellow here, you're going at the paddock bend. Um, I'm really sorry, I'll not do it again, <laughs> says Alan, straight away. And the steward says, and the steward's a real sort of looking down his nose at you, real arrogant sort of character. He says, so did you not see the yellow flag? Alan says, no, I'm sorry, I didn't see the yellow flag. I'm very sorry, I'll not do it again. He says... Did you see the tractor hauling the car out the gravel trap? The big yellow tractor? And Alan says, oh, yeah, I saw the yellow tractor. And I just put my head in my hands and thought, <laughs> you saw the yellow tractor, but you didn't see the yellow flag. Loads of them. However, this story I only heard the other day. And I thought, this is such a great story. I'm going to have to put it forward to dear on the HRN podcast. So I'm traveling back from Daytona with Peter Mackay, who was one of our commentators on RSL out there on IMSA radio. And 
I was telling him about a story, Jim, that you were part of when we were at the Nürburgring with the LMS back in the early 2000s. I think it was 2001. It was 2000. And was it 2000? Right. It was 2000. So we're at the Nürburgring, but we're on the Nürburgring Grand Prix circuit for the LMS. However, in one of the down days, we have the opportunity of being taken around the Nordschleife, but none other by none other than Jürgen Bart. And I'm telling Peter this story about how we jump into this Audi A6. He takes the light bar off because it comes off at 120 miles an hour. It flies off, so he has to take it off. And there's Chuck dressing in the front seat. And I think it was me and you in the back seat, Jim. Was it, was it, am I right? Yes, it, yes, it was. Right. So Jürgen Barth's taking us around the Nordschleife, and he's given us a commentary all the way around. And he's like, down, down towards the foxhole through those sweeps. All the way through here is flat, 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 flat. I'll never forget those words. All the way through here, flat, flat, flat. Just phenomenal. And so I'm telling, I'm telling Peter this story about, you know, and he's like, oh, you're rather notch life with Jürgen Bart. I says, oh, mate. I says, you know, he was even wearing the ring from his 1,000-kilometer win at the Nürburgring notch life back in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, he says, <laughs> have you heard the story of his, you know, of, of his family and how he, you know, and, and his father? And, and I says, no. So this is the story, right? So Jürgen Bart's father, Edgar Bart, was a motorcycle racer in Germany before the war. And he raced for a company called the DKW Motorcycle Factory Team. And he was, he was a pretty high-level motorcycle racer. And he also did some racing with BMW. Um, and then along came the Second World War. And this really stopped Edgar Barth's career. As when the war finished, they ended up in the East part of Germany, which was under communist rule. And so, you know, the, the, the fact, you know, motor racing ceased to exist in East Germany. So he finds himself um, in East Germany under Soviet control and motor racing was just like, it was just a distant ambition. Um, he then started racing sort of low key racing. And um, he joined he joined a team called the Ren the Ren Collective, which is simply translated as Workers Going Racing. So you can you can kind of get the sort of feel for it. And they used um, um, and it was all done in East Germany, the DDR, all in the Eastern Zone as it was called then. And he raced for the Eisen Eisenach Motorworks, uh, which had been part of BMW until the war, and then it was all segregated and cut it off. And EMW was the Eisenach Motorworks, which was a BMW factory pre-war. So he starts racing again. And he raced at places like the Tempelhof Airfield um, circuit. He did some car racing um, uh, with, um, I think, some Porsches and stuff. And it got to the point where um, he was permitted to compete in the western part of Germany in some international competition. Um, he was on an old EMW bikes that didn't have the funding. He raced on the Nürburgring. And there was a point where, when racing in the west, um, he decided to defect. Now, 
there was about an estimated 400,000 East Germans fled in 1953 alone. And there was just this stream of people leaving the eastern part of, you know, Soviet-controlled Germany. So they were just flooding across to the west. And that, so that's when the segregation came in in Berlin. And that was when the wall was put up in 1961. The EMW, the rent collectives days were numbered because they just ran out of money. Um, and Edgar Barth knew that his racing days were over. So that's what he did when he decided to uh, defect. However, he defected without his family, leaving Jürgen, young Jürgen, in, in Eastern Germany with his mother. So he continues to race in the West. His family's in the East. I think this is about six months um, after he'd been in the West and had def- as what they called defected. His family decide to try and follow him. Now, this was really risky because it was reputed that one in 20 people were informants to the Stasi, which was basically wow. the DDR's secret police. So your neighbours could be informants to the authorities. So you didn't know who to trust. And in the November of 1957, Edgar went off to, to compete in the 1,000 Ks in Venezuela. He's, all, he's off racing in Venezuela, and his wife and kids are making their risky journey back to the West. So they gathered basically their belongings, anything they could carry. Uh, they trudged through forests. They jumped in cars belonging to people who they felt they could trust and eventually made it to east, the eastern side of Berlin, which was behind the Berlin Wall. They just did not know who they could trust. So it was because of it was it was a day. It was it was a day of mourning. Um, it was when. Germany kind of paid um, tribute to their dead. Totten Sonntag, I think is the word. Um, the Baths, the family, young Jürgen and his mother, boarded the S-Bahn train from east to west Berlin. And because it was kind of a public audi- uh, uh, holiday, there was less of a security presence on the east to west German spot check. And it was spot checks, not everybody. And they made it across to the west. Now, if it that journey was so treacherous... I mean, you know what? The the fact that Jürgen Barth actually, made, you know, six months after his dad had defected, he finally joined up, and because of his dad's connections with racing, Jürgen Barth became one of the one of history's finest sports car drivers. Yes. Class win at Le Mans in nineteen seventy two, in a Porsche nine eleven, he won the race overall in nineteen seventy seven in that iconic, most beautiful. Martini liveried racing Porsche 936. He shared the car with Ix and early Airwood. He, uh, he went on to have another couple of class wins, 81 and a Porsche 944. 93, his last Le Mans, he won his class in a 911 Carrera. He had two other podiums in class class podiums. Um, a third overall in 82 in a 956 with Al Albert and early Airwood. We have that perilous journey, which is worthy of a film script, to thank me, to, I have that to thank for that magnificent experience of being taken around the Nordschleife by Jürgen Barth. 
Um, just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. And I just think, and I, and I had a story lined up and I filed that because I think this story has so much more depth and and sort of, you know, that, that I mean, it is a film script, isn't it? Yes. Making their way through forests and and I've kind of I've kind of swept across that story because you can imagine there's so many anecdotes of how they got you know how they fed themselves how they survived who they trusted who they didn't trust I just thought it was magnificent and a, a big thanks to Peter Mackay for telling me this and 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 also you've only touched the tip of the iceberg I have yeah. accomplished uh, even in his later years with BPR and we have the Porsche 962 thanks to him. So, yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely, yes, yeah, and and yeah, another great personal story, and I, I think the the other thing about crossing the border in from East Germany to West is you didn't pay with a prison sentence, you paid by getting shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a paid with your that. life. Yeah. Yes, you're listening to the historic Racing News Radio Show. And finally, Paul Judd, what have you got? <sighs> well. I started off thinking this was quite hard. And then ultimately, I just came across so many stories that I think we can revisit this one again and again. And um, I thought about getting personal because, you know, I've done Le Mans with a couple of teams and they're fantastic stories. You know, if you're there, any anyone at Le Mans, any particular car, you could fill hours with stories just from your week at Le Mans with things that have happened. Or I thought of the, the time when I had to stand in and become a uh, British Touring Car Championship grid girl. Sorry, grid person, I think is probably the better phrase. When I was with the <laughs> team and our girl got stuck in traffic and I was there. And it turns out to be far more complex than I thought. But uh, hey-ho. <laughs> did you, did you know that you need? Well, looking good so, in Lycroft is complex, Paul. <laughs> no, it was before then. No, no, no. It turns out you're holding the pole with the car number, isn't it? And you go out on the grid and you have to face down the circuit until your car comes, primarily so you don't get mowed down by anybody. And then when your car's there, you've got to turn around. And, oh, it's very complex. And fortunately, the very nice girl to my right was talking me through it. But I was then spotted by Alan Hyde, despite being halfway down the grid, and unfortunately got interviewed at Croft on the grid as a grid person. But there we go. Not my finest hour. But <laughs> I was talking earlier in the program about uh, the 1950s. And a couple of stories from there caught me. But, you know, the, Monaco, 1950, just the second ever Grand Prix. And on the opening lap, a freak wave actually soaked part of the circuit and caused chaos at Tabac, ultimately putting 10 cars out the race. Fangio was leading, comes around the final corner, sees the yellow flags, but in fact slows right down and sticks a hand up to indicate to the closely following Villaracy there was a problem. The track was blocked, fuel all over the surface, marshals trying to deal with everything. And, you know, one report is Fangio actually nudging a car out of out the way so that he could get through everything and continue racing. And uh, after the race, he was actually asked why he slowed down so much before he could even see the incident, which was out of his sight around the corner. And he said it was the spectators. He said, I was the race leader, but they weren't looking at me. They were looking the other way. And, yeah, these people, they're thinking in a different way to us mortals. And I, <laughs> I love these stories that reveal a little about the driver i spoke about alberto ascari earlier and uh, you know someone who seemed to be liked by all his rivals and didn't really quite get into alberto the man but uh, the famous motorsport photographer lewis clement clementaski i always get that wrong tells of having been at a race in the nurburgring in august 1950 watching ascari win and the next race was the international trophy back at silverstone Clementaski was being driven back by a friend and on the cross channel ferry they saw ascari and fellow racer serafini in the bar now, we'd never met Ascari before, but they introduced themselves, chatted the entire crossing. And as the ship was docking, Ascari said, I have to drive to London 
do you know the way? Tomataski said he did and started describing the route, at which point Iskari said, why don't you come with me? <laughs> You're not going to turn that down, are you? So they went down <laughs> to the car deck and there were two open Ferrari 166S race cars. Tomataski went to jump in the passenger seat, only to be stopped by Iskari, who said, in England, you drive on the other side of the road, don't you? Because Clementaski was actually British, despite his unusual surname. He said, in that case, you drive. So they set off out of Dover with Clementaski leading Serafini in the other Ferrari. And there was no traffic, no speed limits. And Clementaski had the Ferrari up to 100 miles an hour and realized that Ascari was getting a bit agitated about that in the passenger seat. So he finally gave him a quick look. And Ascari pointed at the gear stick and held out five fingers. And for the first time in his life, Clementaski was actually driving a car with a five-speed gearbox. <laughs> so, for the, so he actually just changed up. The engine relaxed. Ascari promptly settled back and went to sleep. So, you, yeah, you know, yeah, you can drive. I'm going to let you drive. Off you go. I'm having a nap at 100 miles an hour. That's how these people were. And there's so many stories. I, I, I came across so many stories about Hans Stuck and Dieter Quester and their duel <laughs> when they were driving for BMW, the things that they did to each other. Dieter Quester and Gerhard Berger. Berger was going to drive him to the track. Quester was always late. Turned up in the lobby of the hotel stark naked with his bags because he said, "If you, I knew you'd leave without me if I wasn't ready. And he hadn't had time to get dressed. But, oh, you know, so many. Graham Hill. Graham Hill, great character. I remember as a child, that bad crash he had at Watkins Glen being interviewed on live TV. I think it was Sports Personality of the Year from his hospital bed, still being charming and witty. You know, Graham, a great underrated champion in my view, but he was on uh, at an endurance race in the US and in the pit lane was interviewed by the great Chris Economaki. And Chris says, uh, so uh, what kind of car will you be driving in today's race? Hill gave him a blank look, looked at the camera, looked at the car, walked across to it, bent down, looked at the emblem on the front, walked back and said, it's a Ferrari, I believe. <laughs> But if you're going to go for stories, there is a gift that keeps giving. And the obvious go-to for any motor racing stories are the Brambilla brothers, Vittorio and Tina. Yeah. Stories been told so many times about them, stories that have no doubt evolved over many years. But, you know, hey, in Vittorio's case, we're talking about a driver with one of the best nicknames in motorsport. He was known as the Monza Gorilla, a man who took one Grand Prix win, got so excited celebrating crossing the line that he crashed the car. But both brothers raced. You see, in a race at Monza, Vittorio was just ahead of Tino, came out of a corner, but Tino got the better exit, got alongside, and then moved across on him. Not moved across on him, but actually interlocked the wheels and got the two cars as close as he could. Vittorio reported just locked out the arms and is trying to keep his car in a straight line. After the race, essentially, in probably broad Italian, what were you trying to do? And Tino said, my rev counter wasn't working. I wanted to see what RPM we were putting in top gear. <laughs> The, the classic and the favourite you know, circuit, the one that's really known, is, is about with Tino testing at Monza. And I think it was a story, you know, that's again been told a lot. But basically, they were at the circuit. Vittorio was mechanicing. And they had a, a young guy called Pino who was also helping them. This is when Tino was in Formula 3. And again, only car out there. They're out on circuit. And they just heard the engine note stop. And they realized, they knew the car was low on fuel, and they realized he'd run out of fuel, and he actually stopped at the second Lesmo. They got Pino to take a can of fuel out to Tino in the car, which is quite a long walk, actually, to the second Lesmo. And uh, on arriving at the car, Tino was sat in it, yeah, and as they were, they had fuel, so they filled the tank, and uh, Tino said, um, hop on the back, I'll give you a ride back to the pits. 
Oh, those phrases. That's not a phrase you necessarily want to hear from a racing driver. But hey, so with Pino sat on the back, clutching onto the roll bar, presumably, I can only think holding an empty fuel can in one hand. Tino set off from the Lesmo, went down, reportedly went through the Ascari chicane, and uh, suddenly he was first gear, second gear, third gear, up through the gears, gets back to the pits. And uh, Vittorio says, it was fuel? Yes. Where's Pino? They found him supposedly quite a bit later, face down in the grass on the outside of the Parabolica. <laughs> no gravel in those days, of course. And, uh, you know, one of, yeah, that was the Brambilla brothers all over. So many stories of them. And uh, reputedly, Pino was still working for them in the late 80s. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you want to go motorsport stories, you go to the Brambilla brothers. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. And uh, some some great, great stuff there. Uh, we're going to come back to the results a little later, later I think, with... With that, that set of stories, I do need some time to think about that. So we're back a little later with those. Uh, before then, I spoke to John Wales about the difficulties surrounding Donald Campbell's Bluebird boat. On the 4th of January 1967, one of the daredevil heroes of the British public perished in a largely unexplained accident. Donald Campbell died 57 years ago and the man who was such a controversial figure during his life is now sadly once again surrounded in controversy the wreckage of campbell's bluebird the record-breaking boat we're talking about here of course was recovered by an organization started by diver bill smith that called itself the bluebird project and that uh, that started in October 2000, I think, when the first sections were raised, and in May 2001, when more of the more of the wreckage was brought up, and of course Donald Campbell's body was recovered from the wreckage as well. I'm joined today by Donald Campbell's nephew, Don Wales, to talk about the disagreements and the problems that they've all faced since that time about Bluebird K7. Who owns it and what should happen to it? As I recall, Don, your mother was never in favour of raising the vessel in the first place. Yes. Uh, hello, Paul. Thanks for inviting me back to um, give you a, a sort of update on, on where we are. Thanks um, for coming. Yeah, well, it... Um, goes back to really 1997 for, for myself with involvement with um, Bill Smith. This was the 40th anniversary of, no, it wasn't, it was the 30th anniversary, I beg your pardon, of Donald's accident, 1997. And I was chatting with people at the memorial on January the 4th, and I got this tap on my shoulder, and um, I sort of carried on talking to the person because I didn't want to be rude to the person I was talking to. But this tap on my shoulder was very persistent. And I turned around and this chap introduced himself as Bill Smith and said you know, that he was a, an amateur diver and that he was going to go and find my uncle's boat. And I said, well, I'd rather you didn't. Could you leave it alone, please? Uh, and thought nothing more of it, really. Um, carried on my conversation with the person that I was originally talking to. <laughs> And um, just thought it was a bit bizarre for this person to sort of interrupt what I was you know, talking to someone. And then, yes, you're right. Fast forward to 2001. 
and uh, Bill Smith announces that he's found the boat, the wreckage, to cousin Gina, Donald's daughter. And he says, uh, I found your dad's boat. Would you like a piece of it? And apparently she said, no, I want all of it. Um, and while you're at it, you can find my dad's body. So he took this as a sort of a green light to be an official um, endorsement that he could just go off and um, do as he wished, if you like. Um, and you're absolutely right. When I told my mum, uh, she said, well, um, no, Skipper and Craft stay together. Uh, we didn't raise the boat up uh, after the accident for a number of good reasons. One, we couldn't afford it. Uh, and two, it was his grave, really. We, we mm. divers went down on the day or four days later to find uh, Donald. They found the wreck, but no Donald. It was assumed he was probably um, underneath it. And it was decided, well, leave him where he is um, because we can't afford really to, to raise it. And um, Skipper and Craft stay together. So she was against uh, this new dive and she was against it being raised. And, and her words to me still um, ring in my ears that she said, if that boat comes up, it'll be a can of worms. Mark my words. And wow, prophetic. absolutely right. And I feel guilty that at the time I thought that we, we had found someone who was going to be honourable. Uh, he seemed on the outset to be honourable and do the right thing. And whilst we had a generation, my two brothers and Gina, that cared about my uncle, that we would be able to sort of get it raised up and look after it and do something proper with it. Um, and I convinced my mum and Tonya to um, sort of not air their um, concerns too much, but for all of us to agree that the boat should come up. So Tonya, um, Donald's widow, was against it as well? She was, yes. Yeah. Um, but we thought that Gina's wishes should be more uh, listened to it was her dad um, and yes it would be nice to sort of give him a proper burial uh, once he was found um, and and then the boat and him could be reunited in Coniston at some point we didn't know then what we could do with it whether we would restore it or put it on display as a wreck or whatever else and we had to prove then that we owned it um, or the... Yeah, I was going to ask you that because obviously, if it, if it had been lost in the middle of the Atlantic, um, then it doesn't belong to anybody, and somebody can go and get salvage from from anything Absolutely. that's in international yeah. waters. But who who does it belong to when it's in? Well, in... luckily for us, um, there is no salvage rights on an inland waterway. And Mr. Smith allegedly looked into that shortly after he found it because he wanted to see if he could make a claim for it, um, I believe. So uh, there is no salvage rights for Inland Waterway. But another character um, who had a museum down in, in Sussex said he owned the wreck. So really? 
um, he said he had bought the rights to it from the insurance company. Well, it's a very, very long story about the insurance company that Donald was a director of as well. Um, technically, the boat wasn't insured. Donald was quibbling over, not quibbling, but hadn't paid the last instalment and had asked for an alteration to the insurance to include, um, uh, I think now that the boat had been modified, he needed to increase the, the value of it. And um, he hadn't actually technically insured it. But the insurance company agreed to make a goodwill gesture payment less the premium that he hadn't paid. So it was an ex-gratia payment and um, was not an insurance claim. Interesting. But, I've never heard that story. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, Paul, it's a very long story. There is a, a book and a film and a, <laughs> a very long documentary series about all of this that's been going on for uh, ever since Donald's accident. And then obviously you've got Donald's life before that. Um, so um, luckily, Lord Mishcon, who was Donald's solicitor, had kept all of Donald's paperwork. Um, and we categorically proved that Tonya owned the wreck as the beneficiary of Donald's will. Um, and uh, Tonya then actually said that she wanted to give the boat to me, or the wreck, I should say. Mm. Um, and I said, well, that's, that's very kind of you, Tonya, but um, I've got nowhere to store it. Uh, I've got certainly not got the money that is going to be required to um, look after it, get it rebuilt, because we couldn't put it on display as a, uh, a wreck, in our opinion, because it was just too morbid. When uh, we went up to Newcastle to see all the bits that Bill Smith had managed to get off the bottom of the lake, um, he had sort of placed together the, what remains of the cockpit there were, and you could just about see where Donald had been thrown through the uh, canopy. Oh, so, yeah. You know, and it was such a horrible, mangled uh, mess that it just couldn't go on display as a wreck. So, so the, the intention was to uh, return the boat to a seaworthy condition? Yes, we, um, we spent three or four years trying to convince the lottery to give us a grant to restore it. Uh, they turned us down twice for a number of reasons, which um, I won't go into today. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Smith then said, well, look, let's do it ourselves, that he would take control um, if we allowed him. And he would source uh, businesses to help. He would get volunteers to help uh, he would raise funds by selling um, merchandise if we allowed him to use the Bluebird name and logos, which we did. Um, and uh, he he got, yes, people to help, volunteers who would go up at a weekend and literally pull it apart, uh, dry it out, and then start to put it back together. So all this time... Uh, there was a small army of volunteers going up who then became like a a trusted circle of friends of, of Mr. Smith. And we allowed him to 
continue uh, for a number of years to just restore it at his own pace. Um, the museum wanted to uh, know what we were going to do with it. And this is the Ruskin Museum. The Ruskin Museum. My timeline's slightly out here, but basically uh, we uh, had already now uh, donated the wreck to the museum, the Ruskin Museum, uh, to allow them to apply for a grant to get uh, an extension built on the Ruskin Museum for the Bluebird Wing to house the Bluebird Boat. Because the Ruskin Museum is is at Coniston, isn't it? It is, yes. It's it's just off the one of the um, streets in, in Coniston. It's a little museum dedicated to, well, Coniston life, but mostly um, John Ruskin. And it wasn't going to be big enough to house the Bluebird boat. So they got something like £800,000 worth of grants to build a magnificent new wing to house the boat when Mr Smith had finished restoring it. Um, and then many years later, uh, I started to, to sort of sense that this wasn't quite what was going on, wasn't quite what we wanted. And uh, the goalposts kept changing. Mr Smith kept very um, carefully changing the goalposts to what we originally sort of suggested and agreed we wanted. And um, it gets to the point where, well, he wants to run it. I thought we shouldn't run it at the time. Um, and and uh, he then starts to say that he, he owns the new bits that he's put on. Uh, and I, I'm ringing alarm bells all over the place um, with Coniston, uh, with the family. But uh, I'm afraid it sort of fell on deaf ears in the early days. Uh, and again, I can't say too much about um, all of that no, history. I appreciate um, But uh, needless to say, 20 years later, we're still in the position that he has the the boat in his workshop it's it's completely finished apart from maybe some cosmetic tidying up to do he has run it uh on lock fad um in the isle of butte in 2018 i think it was or 2019 i forget now 2018 so all intents and purposes it's finished so therefore put it in the museum as agreed but he then said he owns the whole thing or he and the Bluebird Project own the whole oh, thing. I see, I see. And, and just going back to that rebuild thing, that the vessel as it exists today, obviously very comprehensively restored, um, how much of that is the original craft? Well, there's, there's all sorts of different um, information from bill smith about exactly how much is original at one time he was saying that nearly all of it was original and he was able to put back everything that he found off the bottom of the lake or most of it um, we know that the sponsons so the front end of the boat um, had to be um, built from new because um, they came to the, the surface on the day of the accident because they were the sort of buoyancy aid of the, of the boat mm. um, and Ken Norris took them away to try and work out if he could what had caused the accident just from um, what was left of the, the sponsons so um, they were then 
um, lost, <laughs> for oh, want of a better word. Um, they got buried in, a, in an inspection pit in his engineering works. Uh, concrete poured over the top of them, and it's now a housing estate. So, no, somewhere in Sussex, um, there is a a house sitting on top of uh, bits of bluebird. So, Bill Smith had to get those rebuilt. He had um, uh, a lot of help doing that financially and um, with materials, uh, but he says he owned them. And then he said, well, while I'm at it, I may as well own the whole boat. So uh, that then became the point for the Ruskin Museum to say, well, no, let's negotiate on this. So we tried to negotiate on it. Uh, it failed. And the Ruskin then had to instigate legal proceedings to claim their property back. I mean, obviously, you're you're very involved um, in your world as a as a photographer with historic cars and all sorts of other things as well, obviously. But we we all know, and all of our listeners know, that there are some very historic race cars out there which would claim to have won this race or finished second in that race. Um, and there's very little of the original left. That's right, and yes. Presumably, that's kind of the same thing with Bluebird. Um, well, yes, I mean... With... It depends how um, thorough you want to be. There is a completely new engine in there because the engine um, disintegrated uh, over the time that it was in the in the lake. I say a new engine, you know, a, a similar um, Orpheus engine that's been on loan to um, to Bill Smith. Um, so the engine isn't the same um, engine. Uh, the front end isn't the same it's new uh but i think a lot of what you would classify as the main body um is refabricated if you like with original bits lots of original bits uh the cockpit's all new um bits of the seat are the same seat um the steering wheel got mangled uh, so there's a new steering wheel so that yes i suppose you could say it's a bit like trigger's broom but um uh, a lot of it a, there is a fair fair chunk of that that is original yes and and has been straightened out and had bits added to it to give it strength maybe um but definitely the spirit of k7 is very much alive in that rebuild yes and you said about the fact that the the rebuilt k7 has run it has it has been on the water and and done all those things how do how do you feel about that um does, does it give you I a always thought throat or? it well i didn't go up and see it because uh, i didn't think it was a good thing for me to be up there because mr smith and myself just do not see eye to eye um Gina went up uh, and got very emotional about it and carried away with some of the things she said at the time. Um, but I did see the news footage um, and, and other, other footage that uh, people showed me. And it looks magnificent. I never saw it in real life on the water uh, or heard it. You know, So as a, as a child, I didn't fully appreciate 
what it was. I, I actually only saw the boat under a tarpaulin at, at Donald's home. Uh, I sat in the Bluebird car with my uncle, um, but never saw the boat. So the sort of racer in me would love to see it on Coniston now um, and hear it on Coniston. But the sort of family side, it, it's still thinking, well, my uncle was killed in that boat. Um and I didn't think that anyone should sit in the cockpit, despite a lot of it now not being original, but bits of the seat are original, I believe. Um, and some of the bits are, are still original, but not a lot of it. Um, and I just want out of respect, Donald's wishes would be, well, yes, I love seeing it, but I don't want anyone to sit in the cockpit because that's what killed me. Um, that's my my opinion anyway and i but i would love to see it on one hand yes uh, and hear it because it's a magnificent machine you know it was so advanced for its time um it was amazing the norris brothers yes. and, and I, it. I remember very clearly I've, I've got a few years on you and that uh i remember very clearly the news coming through of the accident um on the radio um i had a I had a holiday job at the time and uh and that they actually stopped whatever the the program on uh, on radio two would have been that everybody was listening to and uh and broke in and said that the accident had happened and i I remember that very clearly and it's so difficult isn't it that you you look at anything like that and I come back to the historic race cars. Um, scenario there are plenty of cars out there which at some time or another in their lives have been involved in a fatal accident and it's um, but I think you use the word respect is is so important in all of this isn't it that um, Bluebird and Donald Campbell and before him obviously his father Sir Malcolm Campbell that Bluebird is synonymous with those two and absolutely yeah and totally. it, it's not as if um there were lots of other people who ran it or ran ran sort of bluebird k7 mark ii or anything like that it was it was always donald's boat and yeah, I think that, absolutely yes yeah no matter what here we, here we are 57 years after the accident and there's there's still Controversy swirling around. Um, is, yes, it's not. Is there I mean, any any sign of a resolution? Well, I'd I'd like to think that common sense will prevail and that um, the truth will win out. Um, you know, we, if we have to rely on the legal system to to get the boat back, then. I just don't see the legal system saying that um, it doesn't belong to the Ruskin Museum. All of it, the new bits, the old bits. Um, someone agreed to restore it at their, at not necessarily at their own cost, but agreed to oversee the project. They've spent an awful long time doing it, 20 odd years. Mm. Um, so, yes, it's a huge chunk of time that they have dedicated to 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 do it. Um, but at the end of the day, that isn't the question. It's who owns the boat. And I just don't see a court 
saying it's owned by Mr. Smith in any shape or form. It's owned by the museum. Um, we've proved that we donated it to them uh, and there is enough paperwork to show Mr. Smith agreed to do it at his own, well, he volunteered to oversee it. Um, I don't know how much of his own money he's put into it. I'm not privy to that, uh, but I'm um, well aware that he's been selling stuff to help fund that. He's had donations from people putting money in buckets, people buying bits for him. We have our Bluebird trade stand that goes around to various um, events. And the amount of people who have come up to us and have said that they donated um, money to go and buy rivets, for instance. Um, mm. And uh, he, this person said, I didn't buy those for Mr. Smith to make an ownership claim of them. I bought those yeah. to put them in the boat to get it uh, on display for the public to see um, and possibly run, you know. So it, 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 there's enough evidence to show that um, the museum owned the boat um, and that should be it. It's a shame that it has got to go to court unless common sense prevails. Um, there is mediation going on at the moment, I believe. I've, I've had to take a, a slightly sideways step because potentially I'm going to be a witness. So I can't know what's um, right. going yeah. on behind closed doors. So, because um, you know, I'm, I'm a witness. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a strange one, isn't it? Because at one end of the spectrum this is an immensely emotional thing for not just the family but for all sorts of people and that the other end it's cold hard facts and yes it's you know the the, the resolution sits somewhere in the middle doesn't it yes it does it, it does and the law will um one uh, one hopes will listen to all of the facts try and take away the emotion. And yes, I mean, I'm passionate about it. And Gina is now passionate that it belongs to the museum. Um, and Mr. Smith is passionate that uh, he and his project own it or own the new bits, whatever um, he, he, he is making a claim for. Um, that, that sort of changes occasionally. Um, so the law needs to get through all of that and come up with the definitive factual story based on the truth. And um, I've said for the last 15 years or so that the truth will come out and right is might. And um, that is on our side, 100%. It is a desperately sad story. and uh, It is. It shouldn't have come to this. Yeah. No, no. And, and I... I wish you and the family well in in what you're trying to do and to to get this back to the museum because I would love to see it in a museum and uh... yes, I mean we all would. We'd all love to see it in the museum. We'd all love to to see it now. I think run on Coniston, and this year is um, the sixtieth anniversary of Donald's unique double record of getting both land and water speed record in the same year in, down in Australia. So wouldn't it be lovely to have the boat to be able to celebrate that? Um, 
I, to I see them to both together would be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I tried to do that in 2014. Um, Did you? The 50th anniversary. But Mr. Smith put an end to that where we tried to get, well, we would have had both car and boat together. So, um, yeah. So this year, there's 60th anniversary of that. So, yes, it would be fantastic if we can somehow achieve a, a proper celebration of that whilst family members are still alive. Uh, but it's also the centenary of grandfather breaking his first land speed record on Pendine Sands in the Sunbeam. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's a big year for the family in, that, in celebrations and com uh, commemorations. Um, and then next year, it's the 100th anniversary again of Malcolm getting the first 150 mile an hour record. Um, I'm hoping that we will have an event again with the Sunbeam on Pendine to celebrate uh, one or or two of those events on Pendine. I think it's going to be more likely that we'll do it next year in July to celebrate the 150th, um, yes. 150 yes. mile an hour record, which we did for the 90th anniversary. And that was a lot of fun <laughs> on Pendine <laughs> driving the Sunday. So I, I, I get the feeling that this, uh, this story has a long way to go yet. Um, yes. And oh, in many ways, I, I hope it has. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I hope, Don, that you'll, uh, you'll come back and bring us up to speed as things change. Um, Absolutely. Yes. I mean, as um, when people come up to us at the trade stand and ask us all sorts of questions, and I, I try and keep them up to date with information that I can. We're going to be at Race Retro uh, this year in February up at Coventry, Stonely. Um, and I'm hoping we'll have quite a big stand there um, to show, hopefully, the Sunbeam. Also, uh, one of Donald's cars, the ACS Seeker Bluebird, linked to us by Kevin Schilling, who owns it. And then our Bluebird Safira project, which is a, a school's project to try and inspire students to go on to do engineering courses. Um, and it's a fantastic little jet electric hybrid car um, that will literally fit on a desktop, but it runs and it's got a Guinness record, set a Guinness record for the first type of vehicle um, to uh, achieve, I think it was nearly 50 miles an hour. It's not built for speed. It's built as an educational tool but we are building a faster one. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> it's based on a, on the sort of gravity racing idea, but um, it's going to have hopefully two jet engines rather than one and be more aerodynamically streamlined. So there's a lot going on for our family. Um, and whilst um, there's um, breath in my body, I will be promoting my, my family as much as I can and defending um what is the truth and what is right we have experienced over the years two or three characters who have tried to make money out of our family um and um done it in a deceitful way so i'm determined to carry on showing that we we are moving forward with the truth and honesty behind us well all of the um, Historic Racing News team will be up at Stonely for Race Retro because we're, we're hogging, hogging the live stage for each of the three days when we're up there. So we'll be, we'll be there 
it'll be great to catch up and to hear a bit more about it. Don Wales, thank you very much indeed for coming and taking the time to tell us about this. And I look forward to you coming back again and telling us some good news. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Well, I'll see you at Race Retro because, yes, I'm going to be on the stage as well. So, uh, perfect. Thank you, John. You're listening to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Now it's crunch time. Uh, <laughs> do you know, there are times that I love what I do with uh, with Corridors of Power and sometimes I really don't. And this is one of those where you, you all... Uh, You've all given us a lot of thought, and there were some brilliant, brilliant stories. You know how we we talk about the fact that this should be like um, like four blokes sitting in the pub. Well, mm. this is very much that sort of uh, situation, and that makes it all the more difficult for me. So, we've got the the fall and rise of Watkins Glen from Jim. We've got Joe Bradley's Jürgen Bart story and uh, and the East and West Germany stories that go with that. Or we've got Paul Jurd's Brambilla stories, Brambilla stories. Um, all things considered, I mean, they're all they're all personal. They've all got some some great great stories about. However, I'm going to choose the story that I didn't know because I think that's that's an important mm-hmm. one. So mm-hmm. winner of Corridors of Power for February is Joe Bradley. Yes. Yeah, bravo, bravo. Uh, nice I, done, Joe. Well, well told story, well told story, and a great story. I, I thank Peter Mackay for that, because I was fascinated with um, with that story that he told me, and I didn't know it either. Uh, had no clue. I just think that it's you know got so much depth to it. Um, at that period of history as well in in Germany, you know, with the DDR and and West Germany, of course, brilliant story. Yes, I mean it's unthinkable. Well, I, I hope it's unthinkable. Yeah, in twenty twenty four, but uh, yeah. remains to be seen. Um, we will. Congratulations to all three of the the panel. Don't forget that we'll be back in two weeks' time on the 21st of Feb, when we'll be looking back at a trip to Retromobile, which happens in Paris every year. And it's a, I mean, it, it is one of those events that they almost don't let you in unless you're wearing Gucci loafers. It's one of those kind of uh, things, money beyond measure. So I'll be doing, bringing some, uh, some stories back from there, I hope. Um, and we'll be talking about Race Retro, which happens 23rd to the 25th of February. And please don't forget that the HRN team will be there on stage at lunchtime on each of the three days. So please come and say hello. We will be doing a, an abridged version of Corridors of Power and uh, that we're on the on the Friday We'll be doing the greatest rally car of all time. On the Saturday, we'll be doing the finest British touring car or British saloon car, whichever way you want to look at it. And on Sunday, we'll be reprising our efforts at um, the greatest film, motor motorsport film of all time. So we'll be, be doing that. So do come and say hello. We'd love to see you. And if you haven't got your tickets... 
yet, go to raceretro.com and use the code HRN24 to get a special historic racing news discount. But we'll we'll be looking at the final countdown to that in two weeks' time. That's it from us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, my thanks to Don Wales and to Tim Foster. And special thanks to the regular Historic Racing News team of Jim Roller. First place again there, Jim, just uh, just so you know. No more solicitors. Um, so uh, <laughs> first place to Jim Roller, Joe Bradley and Paul Jurd. <laughs> my name is still Paul Tarsi. And as always, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Proceeding was a copyrighted presentation of Historic Racing News in association with White Squirrel Studios. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or usage without the expressed written permission of Historic Racing News is strictly prohibited.